0: always like, you know, my family, there's uh, Roman Catholicism all in my family and just uh, pretty connected. A lot of my friends were uh, Catholic and that, that whole thing always seemed weird to me, like praying to the saints. I never really got that. Like when you can talk to Jesus, why talk to anybody else? You know? And I knew it wasn't worship that we weren't worship, that that wasn't about worshiping these saints, but I'm a little hot coming through there. Is that, um, you can just turn it down a little bit. Probably you guys hearing all that pop. All right, so um, anyway, uh, I, I always wondered what that was about. So I, I would ask some of my friends or relatives, like, why do you why do you pray to the saints? And the, the answer was usually the same across the board, which was that, you know, Jesus seems like he's incredible, and he's the one with all the power, but I have a hard time relating directly to him sometimes. Like, he seems so out there, you know, so high above and everything. So this is talking to someone who maybe I can relate to a little bit easier. I still don't know if I fully get that, like if I can relate to that, but let me tell you what I can relate to is in the scriptures. When I read about Jesus, many times in the scriptures, when I read about Jesus, I'm not sure that I can fully relate to Christ, you know, because I'm like, he's perfect. I mean, enough said, Anybody who knows me knows I'd have a really hard time relating to Jesus. You know, he's perfect. And that's uh, uh, he's the Messiah. And I'm a part of the body of Christ, but I'm one part of it. And he's the whole package, you know. And so sometimes watching Jesus, I don't know, like, is that just a Messiah thing or is that a human thing? And sometimes it's for me reading the scriptures, I can relate a little more easily to someone who's following Christ rather than Christ himself. You know, um, I know that our, our what we're called to do is be little Christ. That's what Christians, uh, what Christian means, right? We're followers of Christ. And so it's all about trying to emulate him. And yet we can't fully embody Jesus on our own. That's what the whole body of Christ is about. And some of us can identify with different people in the scriptures easier than others. I don't know about you, but I, uh, for me personally, when I uh, am interacting with someone about their faith and I'm trying to get to know them a little bit, there's certain things that kind of tip off how they're wired. And if someone tells me like what their favorite verse is, you know, you can learn about their spiritual life by what their favorite verse is or like who their favorite character is in the Bible. Anyway, for me, David has been that guy in the scripture who God has used over and over again to communicate in my life uh, about faith and about dependence on him through the life of David. And so today. Um, we 're going to be dealing with the text that we have for today, which is Saul dying and how that affects everything um, but uh, this is also going to be a little bit autobiographical because I just want to tell you how God has communicated through my life through the person of David um, and uh, that 's good because uh, i I realized i did, what didn 't realize that I was going to be super sick for the last couple of days, and uh, so at least some of this gets to be testimony, which I can wing it. Um, And uh, and God's power is made perfect in our weakness. So I'm feeling pretty uh, weak and beleaguered today. So as we go into prayer now, um, I would ask that you would ask God to communicate in your life however he wants to communicate to you today. um, And then we'll just let this thing go wherever it's going to go. Okay, join me in prayer. God, we ask for your truth to be spoken to us in your spirit today. We don't want to hear the right words in the wrong way or feel the right thing but know the wrong truth about it. We need you to speak your truth and to speak it in the right way into our hearts so that we can receive it. And each of us might need something a little bit different today. So, uh, God, I ask that you would just please communicate to us directly um, and that we would be... uh, your servants today and we would be your children receiving from you. We know you love us. We know you want to communicate to us. So God help our, uh, hearts and our minds and our ears to be, uh, tuned in so we can hear you please. In Jesus name. Amen. So, uh, three main things that God's taught me through the life of David throughout my life, all of them have to do with faith. All all three of them about how to trust God. The first one is how to trust him when I'm not in control. And that's, that's one that we talked about already previously at a, in an earlier message when, Jay, when David was being chased around the by Saul, and, you know, and hiding out in all the caves and he was oppressed all the time. And God was teaching David that he could trust him and he didn't have to trust Saul and he didn't have to trust his own strength. He could trust God. And God has consistently taught me that message, uh, from the life of David, that when I'm in a situation I can't control, or I'm under authority, that's really difficult to handle. Or when I'm in a situation that I just don't know what to do with, uh, instead of trying to take control and change those circumstances, submit to God, trust him and allow him to be present. There was something that two Sundays ago, we had orphan Sunday here. And, uh, I, a, a few of us have, I've heard a few of you mention something that Carl, if you remember, Carl and Kim Kramer came uh, from North Point and they shared their testimony about adoption. And one of the things that Carl said, I've heard a few of you, uh, remember that and bring it back up. And it was that he said, Hey man, there's tension in our lives. All of us. Cause we were asking how smooth the adoption went. And he said there, Oh, there's so much tension in it, but he's like, I, I just want to urge you not to be too quick to resolve the tension in your life because uh, resolving tension doesn't get you closer to Christ. Uh, knowing Christ in the midst of the tension, that's where we get to know him. And so just instead of trying to resolve tension in your life, just invite Christ into the tension with you and be present with him. And uh, that's, I think, a lot of what God taught me in those in that first principle that he was teaching me through the life of David was like, when things aren't okay, when you're getting treated inappropriately, you can like... Try to take control of this thing and make it the way it should be. Or you can just trust God that he's in control and let him teach you what he needs to. That was lesson number one, but we already talked about that early in the series. Lesson number two was this. It happened a long time ago. I won't tell you how long ago when I just got out of college and Josh and I were serving at Parker Ford Church, but not in this building at the old building. And uh, we weren't on staff, but we were um, we were teaching. Uh, Josh was teaching Sunday school and I was leading worship. And we were in the process of teaching a class together at night um, for the district, actually. And it was um, the class was Old Testament survey. And we were uh, at the time comparing the three kings of the unified kingdom of Israel. So Saul and David and uh, uh, Solomon. Yeah, that's his name. Uh, Saul, David and Solomon. We were contrasting them that night. And I was personally at a spot in my life where I was very unhappy in life in general, uh, extremely unhappy, actually. And, you know, it was funny because I, I, I had so much given to me. I, I grew up in a great family. And I had the, the scriptures drilled into my head through my family and through the school that I went to and then Bible college I went and I was in the Word all the time personally. And yet somehow the, the Word of God, as true as it was and as much knowledge as I had uh, of this Word, I, I was not at a place of joy, you know? The fruit of the Spirit was not uh, producing itself on that level in my life. And I was really kind of depressed and I was still feeling empty inside. And we had, I had uh, asked the elders to have an anointing service for me and, and to pray over me that I would just, you know, begin to be fulfilled by God and not be uh, still empty. And um, so they did that, and that was uh, in, in uh, like, January or something. And this was, like, a month or two later. And I remember the elders telling me, hey, just hang on, hang on after we pray for you and trust God. He's going to answer this prayer for you. And so Josh and I were studying for this class, and I was at Valley Forge Park. And, uh, I was, stu- I was studying by myself at this point, and I was in my old Bronco 2. I had one of these, uh, uh, do you remember what a Bronco 2 looks like? Yeah. I had a maroon one, and it had like a big gray thing down the side, big gray. Shirt. I loved that ride. I had so much fun. It finally met its last days on an icy day in Moton, just south of Reading, on a telephone pole. Yeah. So anyway, I was um it was prior to that that I was sitting in the in that car and I was sitting at uh Valley Forge Park studying and I was reading the Psalms of David and I was also reading Ecclesiastes. And I don't know who wrote Ecclesiastes, nobody does, but I I'm convinced that uh Solomon did. Um, you know, and I, I like to think that Solomon did, or if he didn't, that it was written in a way to describe how Solomon thought. You know, um, because it really describes the wisdom of men. That's what it talks about All the wisdom of man packed into one book. Ecclesiastes gives you about the best picture of uh, human wisdom. And uh, so anyway, I, Ecclesiastes was the only book of the Bible that I could really stomach at that point. It was funny. I, I was identifying huge with the uh, book of Ecclesiastes because I was so depressed. And that book was is really kind of depressing. Um, you know, it says everything is meaningless, you know, and all that. And I really related to that. The, the whole black and white thing of the Bible of like uh, things are this or aren't that or this is right and this is wrong. I didn't relate to that. I lived in a world of gray at the time and Ecclesiastes seemed a whole lot more gray. That was my favorite book. And I was stu- reading that and then I was reading David and I was comparing and contrasting these two mentalities of David who would be like, life was really brutal and yet somehow at the end of his Psalms, he it always resolved with great joy. And, um, and yet Solomon, Solomon, it, there was something about him, okay? He was the wisest man to ever live to date, you know? He had asked God for wisdom and he was just brilliant. He had people coming from all over the world to see his works, to see what he had done, just to ask him questions and to learn from him. He had had a really nice life and kingdom handed to him. And every time he touched something, it just worked out, you know, and it was like Solomon had it all going. I mean, how many girls liked Solomon, you know? And, uh, you know, it was it, Solomon just had, there was a whole bunch of things about Solomon's life that made it look charmed you know? And yet Solomon never seemed to be satisfied. And in that moment, in that, in my truck there, I I remember God kind of, uh, the question coming into my mind saying, Tim, do you want to be like Solomon or like David? You know? And I was like, well, you know, I really relate to Solomon a whole lot more. I've had a lot of blessings the way he has. And, um, and, and God said, yeah, but like, look at the life of David. And as I looked deeper, I realized David was happy He was just really happy. He had a lot of joy. And in the midst of very, very difficult situations in his life, he had a ton of joy. And even when life was terrible, he'd go and pour his heart out to God. And by the end of the time where he was pouring his heart out to God, he'd end up with joy again by the end of the psalm. And I just heard God asking me this question, Tim, do you want to be happy or not? And I was like, well, yeah, but like I can't just make myself happy. I, I mean, how do you just make yourself happy? And then this is what I asked sensed God asking me to do, was to take my rearview mirror and to turn it back and look right into that. And I looked into that rearview mirror, and as I was looking into it, God said, look deep into your eyes, as far deep into you as you can. And I'm looking into it, and he says, what do you see? And I'm like, God, you know what I see? It's nasty in there. It is horrid in there. How can I ever be happy with myself? I mean, if even if I get other people to like me, it's all a sham anyway, because if they saw what was underneath, they wouldn't like it, you know? And I remember so many of my relationships struggled because I, I had this insatious need to be viewed a certain way in order to help me feel better about myself. But in this moment, God's saying, tell me what you think about yourself. And I'm telling him, and he said, Tim, you don't see what I see. When you look at yourself, you see this grimy, nasty sinner who you're always having to compensate for. But when I look at you, what I see is I see a saint. I see a son of the living God. And you have to choose today, right here and right now, whether you're going to believe me or whether you're going to believe you. Whether you're going to listen to the voice of the enemy constantly shaming you about your sin or whether you're going to choose to listen to me and say you're a redeemed child of the living God. Choose today what you'll believe. The first thing that God taught me was about when I was in those circumstances that I couldn't control, trusting him that he'd be in control. The second thing that he taught me was that I'm not in control. And that what I think isn't right. And what I feel isn't right. That his ways are higher than my ways. And his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And my job in faith is to feel according to what it is that he says. Not to feel according to what my circumstances say, not to feel according to what you think about me or what I think about me, but to read the Bible and hear what it is that God says is true and to believe that with every ounce of my being, even though everything that I read or everything I watch or everything that anyone else says might be contrary to that, it might scream something different. I'm going to choose to take God's Bible, the truth of God's word, and I'm going to believe Believe it to the extent that it transforms the way I feel about myself and everyone else around me. See, the first thing he taught me was to submit, even though it seemed like I was submitting inappropriately because this was messed up. The second thing he told me was to believe, even though it didn't make sense to me, particularly to receive his love, to believe that I was loved, to believe that I was respected by God, to believe that he cared about me. And and this is what David had in spades. You know, David in the Old Testament, he's the only person in the entire Old Testament who refers to his relationship with God as a father-son relationship. Until you get to the New Testament, no one gets the whole like that we were adopted as children of God. No one gets it except for David. He's the one person who gets it and it seems like he got it from the time he was on the hills out there with the sheep when his dad and his brother sent him out to the hills and he's hanging out and somehow for some reason he believes that God is good and his heart toward him is good and David never seems to believe that it's because of his own righteousness that God thinks that he's awesome. He's just like God created me where I mess up. God loves me and when I'm afraid of a big bear or a big lion. It's okay. God's going to be with me and I got to do what I got to do, you know? And David always just seemed to trust God that way. And God started to teach me that I needed to quit trying to find my legitimacy and my significance through all these other things in life. And I need to let it go and just trust that I was okay because God loved me. And that Solomon, man, I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how good you are at whatever you do, it never makes you happy in the end. And Solomon was never happy and his life tanked. And no matter how much good stuff he did, the whole kingdom divided under Solomon's watch. You know? That's when it started to fall apart. Because he just couldn't be happy in God. He needed other things to make him happy. It wasn't enough. All right, so they're the first two things that God taught me. The last thing that he, well, the the latest thing that he's been teaching me through the life of David is what our text really refers to a whole lot more today, okay? And, And that has to do with how we deal with when we are in control, the things that he has put under our control, the things that he's given us responsibility for. And how we have faith in the areas where we do have responsibility. Now, what happens is, is we're, the, the text for today is four and a half chapters of scripture. Okay? That's not gonna work. That's a lot of, these are big chapters, so we're not gonna be able to get through them. So, uh, what I wanna do real quick here is just walk you through the story of what happens when Saul dies. Um, and how this affects the life of David and we'll touch on a few of them We'll, we'll read a little bit, but at first i'm just going to uh, talk to you about the story So first samuel chapter 31 is the last chapter in first samuel and for good reason, that's when Saul dies and, and, and then it takes over as David's kind of taken over. So uh, this is the story of of Saul, the death of Saul. Now, I'm not going to read this. If you want to go back and read this later on, you can read 1 Samuel 31. But this is what happens. The Philistines and the, and the Israelites go to war. You know, every year they'd have the, it was like time for war. You know how like when football season comes around and it's time for football season? Back then it was like time for war. That's how they did it. All right, it's the, all right. This it's this time of the year, so we're going to go to war. So the kings would go to war, and now David, uh, David had been, you know, as you know, David had been chased by Saul all over the place. He had actually defected and gone to the Philistines and was hanging out with the Philistines at the time in order to stay away from Saul. But the Philistines were going to war with the Israelites, and and Saul and his son Jonathan were at war with the Israelites. The Israelites started getting beat in this, in this battle and Jonathan dies, Saul's son Jonathan dies. And then eventually all the Israelites are fleeing and, and Saul sees that the Philistines are getting close and he's scared to death. And so he turns to his armor bearer and he asks his armor bearer to kill him. Saul was such a coward, man. And I'm such a coward sometimes too. When it comes to leadership, you know how that, you get to that moment where you can't even think about what the right thing to do is because you're just too scared? Have you ever been in a situation like that where you're just scared about the circumstance and you're not thinking about what the smart thing to do is moving forward? You're just trying to not let the bad thing happen, you know? And Saul, the king of the Israelite army, is turning to his armor bearer next to him and asking him to kill him because he's scared of the Philistines. That is cowardice. It's cowardice. It's not thinking about the kingdom. It's not inspiring hope in your people. It's none of that. But anyway, his armor bearer is much smarter than him. And he's like, there's no way I'm going to kill you. That's uh, not happening. So Saul says, fine, I'll do it myself. And he takes his sword or his spear, depending on which passage you're reading, and he jumps on it. So it runs him through. Okay, so here Saul is impaled on his own weapon. And uh, it's a terrible, terrible way to go. In that passage... In First, in, uh, first Samuel uh, 31, verse 10, after, um, after he's killed and after, uh, you know, the battle's over, the Philistines find his body and they do all sorts of stuff with it. Uh, but verse 10, it says, they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth. They put his, t- his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth. Now, the, the temple of Ashtaroth, this is this God. Now, this is really important for you to hear. When the Israelites were brought out of Egypt, and God brought them to the Promised Land, He brings them into the Promised Land, and they had a job when it came, it came when Joshua took them into the Promised Land, he, God said they were to clear out the enemy. Completely and totally cleanse the land of the enemy. Okay, which, yeah, this is Old Testament, it's hard for us to understand. I mean, God's actually ordering genocide, just saying, wipe out all these nations. Wipe them out. But God, but God made it clear why he said there's evil and false worship in this land that will not be uh, rid. I can't make a holy place unless you rid the, the land of these people. They don't, they fail to do it. Okay. The, the Israelites fail to rid the land of, of the enemy. And what God says is in the book of Judges is he says, you're going to end up worshiping the God of Ashtoreth. And once you start worshiping the God of Ashtoreth, then your enemies are going to defeat you. Okay. And so sure enough, they start worshiping Baal and they start worshiping Ashtoreth and all these. And, and then they end up getting taken over by the Philistines and the Philistines are always haunting them, which is the whole reason why they want a king. And so they ask God for a king and he lets them have the king they want, which is who? Saul, this big, tough warrior guy, right? And that's who they wanted. That's who they got. And so Saul picks up his sword and he leads the battle for Israel. And they think that by the strength of Saul, they're going to be able to win. And when Saul dies, Saul's armor is taken over to the God of Ashtoreth's temple and is hung in his temple. The irony in this is so thick. It's so thick that what's being made abundantly clear here is if you want to fight, this war on your own strength and the armor, the stuff that's supposed to protect you, will hang in the gods of this world, hang in the temple of the gods of this world. You will never win this one. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter when, on that night that he was betrayed? When Jesus could have taken control, but he was submitting to what God asked of him. And and Judas betrays him with a kiss, and then Peter pulls out the sword, and he cuts the guy's ear off. And what does Jesus say to, to Peter? He says, those who live by the sword, will die by the sword, right? In other words, those who live by their own strength will die by their own strength. Those who try to take control and play in this human world will die within it. And so Saul, who lived by the power of his own sword, dies by the power, literally, of his own sword, okay? And this is, so this is what happens to Saul. It's the the way it goes. Now, let's talk about David, because David's really the one who we need to look at in this situation. So if you turn to the next chapter, which is 2 Samuel chapter 1, uh, verse 1 to 16. And uh, right in the middle of this message, I'm going to have you stand with me in honor of God's word. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell on the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle. And also many people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who had told him said, By chance I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close close upon him. And when he looked behind him and he saw me, he called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me. And yet my life lingers. So I stood beside him and I killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took a hold of his clothes and he tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they all mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan and his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who had told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am a son of the sojourner and Amalekite. And David said to him, how is it? You were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. And David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your own head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anoint it. God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can have a seat. This uh, text, this message today, it's kind of like rated R a little bit because there's some real gore in this one. You know, it's amazing um, how uh, the Bible contains this stuff. But what's happening in this moment is that David has just returned from raiding the Amalekites. And this is why. Four major things have happened in David's life, okay? First of all, is that, you know, Saul has rejected him and has been chasing him. Secondly, Samuel, the prophet who anointed him to be king, has just died. So the the one who was like knew his path, you know, his guide, he had just died. Third, the Philistine king, who he had gone to make a contract with, had now kind of rejected him too. He wouldn't let him go to battle with him because uh, his commanders were afraid that David would switch in the middle of the army because they were in the middle of the war because they were fighting against the Israelite army. And so then he comes back to his camp with all his men and when he gets back to his camp, it turns out that the Amalekites had come and they had taken their women and they had taken their kids and they had taken all their possessions and they burnt their city to the ground. So David had absolutely nothing left. So he takes his guys and they run and get all the Amalekites and they bust them up and they get their ladies back and they get their kids back and they get their possessions back and then they come back to Ziklag and here they are and their whole city's burnt down and they're sitting around like what do we do now? And then this guy comes up and this guy's all a mess and he says, "What's going on?" And the guy said, "Okay, well Saul and Jonathan are dead." And at this moment, you you know this could go any number of ways. I mean, David is done being chased by the king. And David now, there's an opportunity for David to step in as king. It might be a resolution, like, it's finally the fulfillment. But what does David do? I love how they mourned back then. He just grabs his clothes, and he rips his clothes. Just picture that. This is such an awesome way of grieving. You know? You just wanna rip something. You know? And he does, and he just rips his clothes. And he doesn't care at all about you know, about, like, what's going to happen next or anything. He's in the moment, and he's grieving. I remember the first time I beat my brother in basketball. I thought it was going to be, like, the best day of my life, you know. My brother was six years older than me, and uh, I was all about beating him in whatever I could. And uh, I remember the first day that I beat him in a wrestling match. I It's, it's bad what I can actually remember about beating my brother. Um, and, you know, every time that I beat him in anything – uh, I always thought it was going to feel awesome, and in the end, it didn't really feel that good. It was anticlimactic. I was like, ah, oh, now what? Or like, oh, I actually feel bad for my brother now, you know? Like, look at that look on his face. Man, that's sad. You know, it, David never seemed to have that when it came to Saul. Why wouldn't David just for once take great joy in the fact that Saul, this guy who had been oppressing him for so long, finally met his end? That's not how he rolled. He was not interested in bad things happening to Saul. He didn't take joy in it. There was nothing about that that made him happy. He rips his clothes and he mourns. What did David care about? What David cared about was the kingdom of God. And what he cared about was his people, the Israelites. And if they were getting hurt by the Philistines, and if his king was dying, it didn't matter how inappropriate his king had been, his heart was going to break. And what's amazing about David is this whole time that he had been chased all around the desert, he didn't let his heart grow hard. That his heart stayed soft. And when Saul dies, his heart breaks. And so David mourns. And what's more is, is that David realizes that this man who came and told him, had just com- he had just confessed to a, to a capital offense. That this man said that he killed Saul. And so David has him killed. And at first it might be like, well, why would David just have him killed? Is that like his own anger or is that like his jealousy that like all this time I, I could have killed Saul and I didn't and then you did it? But the reason was because he understood it was wrong. That's why. Have you ever thought that something was right because it seemed like it would be nice for a person, but then it ended up it wasn't right? Have you ever done something that was nice, but it was wrong? I've done that lots of times where I try to be nice to someone and I think that being nice is right. And that means that I'm God. And what I think is nice is what we determine as right. And this guy walks up next to Saul and Saul says, kill me. And he had to actually kill the king of Israel in order to be nice to the king of Israel. And David's like, you can't do that. You can't murder him and say that it's okay. And you came back with the crown and with the armlet and you thought you were doing me a favor by making me king when you killed So, Being nice doesn't make it right. This is what makes it right. You know? The word of God is what makes it right. There's only one person in the entire universe who can tell us what's right and what's wrong because the rest of us we're all subjective we all have our own opinions and our own feelings and our minds are jaded and all this and and we're not objective there's only one who can tell us what's right or wrong and the only way we know whether we're right or wrong is by the word of god and so david has to actually kill this guy because that's what the punishment is for killing a king and he doesn't do it out of vengeance He doesn't do it because he's mad at him. He doesn't do it because he's trying to prove something. It's because that's what the law required. And why is that important? Well, it's important because that's what his job is going to be if he's going to be king, is to make sure he enforces the law. So this is what happens at this point. David, uh, after Saul's gone, they get done grieving and all that. and, uh, And David He he has this great ability now to actually go back to God and say, what's the next step? Have you ever been in a situation where things have been a certain way for so long that even if the circumstances change, you're kind of stuck in a pattern and you can't move forward with the change? Do you know what I'm talking about? I've I've been in situations where I'm used to, re- maybe when a kid gets out of school, they've been in school mode for so long that once they get out of the into the work world, it's like yeah, it takes a while for them to adjust. There's this great thing that happens with David where, you know, he actually, there's a moment where the game changes and he asks the Lord what he should do. In verse 2, David's so used to submitting that it's hard to think he has to go and take control of something. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, he said, after this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? It's really important that we don't get stuck in old paradigms. You know, there's a moment where God wants us to jump up, where he wants us to bump up past what we've already been and what we've already learned. And sometimes I find people who just kind of get stuck in a paradigm, stuck in a spot with God, and they haven't been able to take the next step up. God, what do you have for me now? Like, that's been good. You taught me this. But what's next in my life? What's the next level? And for David, the circumstances changed here. And he asks God, should I go up to Judah? If he goes up to Judah, that means he's going home now. He's been running away from this place for forever. And he asks God, and God tells him to go up, and he tells him to go to Hebron. And once he gets to Hebron, a bunch of people anoint him king of Judah. Okay, and once he's king of Judah, it doesn't mean he's king over all of Israel, because there's this other guy, Ishbosheth. And Ishbosheth is the son of Saul. Okay, and Saul has a commander of his army, Abner. And Abner's a pretty cool guy. Abner, uh, he, he's been warring for Saul for all these years. But now Abner goes and he does kind of what he's supposed to do. He gets Saul's son. Ishbosheth, and he anoints him king. So now David is anointed king by the people in Hebron over the, over Judah. But then the rest of Israel, there's this guy Ishbosheth, Saul's son, who's king, and Abner's his commander. David has his own commander of his army, and his name's Joab. Okay, Joab and Abner are hardcore warriors. These two guys, both of them, are fierce, fierce warriors. All right. So then, God tells him, go up there. He becomes king. Ishbosheth becomes king. And you think all of a sudden that David's going to, it's all going to be easy and God's just going to establish his way. But listen to this. 2 Samuel chapter 3. Or 2 Samuel, yeah, chapter 3, verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. For however many years of David's life, He wasn't supposed to take the kingdom. He wasn't supposed to be the king. He's just sit back and wait on God. And then there's this moment now that Saul dies and God says, I want you to go take the kingdom. And you kind of think like it's just going to happen. But here's the thing is that when God tells us to do something and when God says that he has a calling on our life, we don't just necessarily get it on a silver platter with whipped cream on top and a cherry. You know, God doesn't say, okay, here's your calling. What he does is there's these moments like David where it's like, all right, I gotta wait and I gotta wait. And then he says, now take it. And then you go to take it and to step into the thing. And when you get there, you realize you still gotta fight for it. It doesn't just come easy. You actually gotta engage and fight for it. And for years, seven years from the time that Saul died until David is king over Israel for seven years, he has to war to lay hold of his calling. And that's not because he's waiting on Saul. Saul's gone. It just takes seven years for it to work itself out as he lays hold of it. All right, now this battle gets ugly because it's all mixed up with all sorts of people. And Abner and Joab, they're a mess. Uh, the, the war gets ugly. Let, let me tell you two stories. And then, and then at the end of those two stories, we can wrap up with the third point of, the, of how God communicated uh, to me through the life of David. So here's the two stories. Abner, the, he's the commander for Ishbosheth at this point, the king over Israel. And this is what he does. He is when they first start the war between David and Ishbosheth, it's nasty. I'll let you go and read it. I won't even tell it in church. It's so nasty what these guys do. They are but they're ruthless warriors. Joab is here and Abner's here, and they send a bunch of young guys to war against each other. And they're actually sitting next to each other as they watch the younger guys fight it out. Okay, like watching a chess match. And then Joab's brothers, he has two brothers, they get up and they start chasing Abner, the commander of Ishbosheth's army. And Abner starts running away okay? And he's like, I don't want to fight you guys. We're brothers. I mean, this is a civil war. They're all friends. They're brothers. He doesn't want to kill him, And he's really, he knows Joab really well, and he doesn't want to kill Joab's little brother. But little his little brother, Abishai, apparently, they said he was like fast as a deer, okay? And he's like chasing him down. They sh- his Native American name would have been like, fast deer or something, you know? Um, and so he's chasing down Abner and Abner is, this is the general of the, this is the general of the Israelite army who's being chased by this guy. Okay. And he keeps yelling back to Abishai, He's like, stop chasing me. I don't want to kill you. Stop chasing me. I don't want to kill you. Joab's going to be furious with me if I kill you. And I don't want there to be a breach between us. But Abishai won't let up and he keeps chasing him. So finally, Abner stops, dead in his tracks and takes a spear and puts it back like this and he runs right through it. And Joab will never forgive Abner for it. And Abner was trying hard not to do anything. But see what happens is it all gets messy. It all gets messy. And we live in this messy world and it all gets messy. And what ends up happening is that Abner eventually realizes this thing with Ishbosheth isn't working out, and David is supposed to be the king. And so he comes to he he decides to leave Ishbosheth and come over to David. And he says, "Look, man, whatever they're doing in Ishbosheth's camp is not honoring to the Lord. And God said that you're supposed to be the king. So I'm going to submit myself to you." And so Abner and David make a contract. And now the commander of this other army joins forces with David. And so. It should all be sealed and things should be in good shape, except for the fact that Joab comes back from the battle and he hears what, what just happened with Abner and David, that they made this pact. And he says, oh, okay, so we're on the same team now. Let's go have a meeting about it. And when they get into the corner, he takes out a knife and he kills the guy. And so he kills the, the commander of the Israelite army, all because he was still mad about what happened with his brother. And David gets furious. furious absolutely furious. And why does David get furious? He gets furious because these guys are interested in control and in power, and they're interested in having things done their way more than they're interested in God being in control. The second story goes like this. It's very similar. It's a lot quicker. And it's just that Ishbosheth, the king of Israel, he had two advisors. And those advisors realized what was going to happen, that David was going to take over. And so they decide that they're going to be heroes. And what they do is they wait till Ishbosheth is sleeping. And they walk into his room and they kill him in cold blood while he's sleeping. And then they come and tell David, Hey, we won the war for you. You're the king over all of Israel now. We killed Ishbosheth." Listen to what David's response is. This is in chapter 4. We made it through all four and a half chapters. By the way, there it is. Chapter 4, verse 9, halfway down through. And this is what David says to him. He says as the Lord lives who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. Notice what he says. Listen to that for a second. He says God who is alive and he's the one who redeemed me out of adversity. It wasn't you guys who who won the battle with Ishbosheth for me. God is always the one who who says he saved me from the lion and the bear, he saved me from Goliath, he saved me from Saul. You guys think that you're saving me from Ishbosheth, but it's not true. And so then verse 10. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more then, wicked men, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own bed, shall I not now require the blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? All right. Ugly, isn't it? Everything I'm reading today, it's like, oh, man. This is the deal. Why is this important to read? What we realize when we watch the life of David is that when these Israelites came into the land, they never submitted to what God said. He told them to clear out the enemy, to rid the land of the darkness. And they never did. And since they didn't, they ended up worshiping false gods and then they fall prey to the enemies of those false gods. Here's what you find in David. David realizes the Philistines aren't the only enemies. My friend Joab, the commander, there's enemy inside of him. That these guys over here who just killed Ishbosheth in cold blood, the enemy exists inside of them. And what he realizes is if I'm going to clear out the enemy from our land, it doesn't start by killing a bunch of Philistines out there and telling everyone else out there what they're doing wrong. It starts with me looking in my own house and in my own camp and among my own commanders and understanding this, that the enemy that we war against is the enemy that whispers inside of our hearts. And this is what God communicated to me through the life of David. Not only that when we're not in control, that we submit and trust that he is. Not only that I need to view myself the way he views me, not the way I want to view myself. But third, is in an area where we do have control, where we have responsibility, we invest every ounce of our being, every ounce of our energies, we invest into clearing out the enemy and bringing in the ark of the Lord. God might love me with everything that he has to love me with, but I won't experience the fullness of his sovereignty or his love unless I get rid of the junk that's in my land, unless I get rid of the junk that's in my heart, unless I get rid of the junk that's in my family. I cannot worship God and Ashtoreth. I cannot find pleasure in the things of this world and find pleasure in God and expect it all to work out. The mission for David as the king of Israel was this. I will clear the enemy out of my life and out of my camp. And when I've cleared the enemy out, we'll bring the ark in. And next week, we'll talk about how David brings the ark in. But the lesson to learn today is just simply this. We got to clear out the enemy. And I am telling you, if you want the joy of the Lord in your life, it cannot be while the enemy still exists in the camp. We have to look at our lives. We have to look at this Bible. And then we have to look at our lives. And we have to line it up. And we have to say, I don't care if it's Joab, I don't care if it's myself, I don't care who it is. If there's something that's not lining up with this, then God doesn't have full control over my life right now. And therefore, I'm not experiencing the fullness of what he has. And I will ruthlessly eliminate sin from my life. And if I'm not willing to do that, then I'm not trusting God. And that's all there is to it. And I won't experience the fullness It doesn't mean that God will love me less. He loves me regardless of whether I'm obedient or not. That's the beauty of his grace. But I won't experience him being Lord of my life. And I won't experience the fullness of what he has in his kingdom for me. Unless I will look at that thing and stare deep into it and say, I know I can trust you when I'm not in control. I know that you're going to love me no matter what. But now in the areas of my life where I do have control, I will trust you by making sure you are the God of my life and not me. And I don't care who says anything else. I'm trusting you by submitting to your word. It's that simple. It's gory, bloody truth. (laughs) Let's pray.